So the aristocracy or the people of privilege or the people of wealth had a different relationship with laws than everybody else did. And the society held together and they did what they did and um, the teachings were certainly born into a traditional context. And then around the 16th or the 17th century moved into a modern era uh, characterized by religion. So the religion of the day was reason, not faith. And so when reason became the religion of the day, then with that came the importance to be able to question authority and to be able to see that things actually added up in a logical and reasonable way. And along with that, there became much more of a sense that uh, laws were for everybody and not just for some. And uh, along with this was a kind of a, a disintegration or a dismantling of the village, of the clan uh, system. And so our sense of embeddedness started to dissolve and there was much more a sense of individuality. And that individuality had with it the capacity that one's will was a very strong determining factor in one's ability to change one's position, to change one's status, to change one's acquisition of wealth. Okay, But alongside it, there was never a greater time of an endemic period where there was more sense of isolation, alienation, and meaningless by large numbers of people. And with that isolation, alienation, and meaningless, there was a kind of an all-pervasive sense of emptiness, which is not the emptiness that we hear about in the Buddha's teachings. This is the emptiness of having no sense of who one is or one's place in the world or the purpose of why one is living or what one is doing. And so alongside this emptiness, alongside the alienation, alongside the isolation, came a kind of obsession with distraction, which was then focused into accumulation of wealth, accumulation of power, competition, and um, distraction through drugs and, uh, and uh, use of sexuality as a way of just bringing about pleasure without any sense of meaning or intimacy or connection. At some point, we've transitioned into the postmodern world. And in the postmodern world, one of the ways in which that's characterized is by an interest in bringing about a holistic integration into all parts of our life. So whereas in the traditional society, sexuality was in opposition to spirituality, in a postmodern world, that does not wash. We want to bring these together. And in a traditional society, the ability to question authority was in opposition to loyalty in a postmodern society, we want to be able to hold both. We want to be able to do both. And in a traditional society, the physical world was somehow in opposition to the transcendent world. And in a postmodern society, we want to bring the transcendent into every aspect of our human experience, which includes our bodies, our worlds, our work life, our situation. 
And so in the traditional society, it was often the case that there, was a, there were long periods of time where monastics or contemplatives would be in silence and in retreat as a way of solidifying their practice. And in a postmodern society, we have you know, people who are just um, overextended with duties and responsibilities and wanting to find ways in which the practice can be incorporated into our daily life. Okay. So this is a kind of a cultural evolution of what we've kind of come from and where we're at. And when we look at that in terms of what we're dealing with with the Eightfold Path, it has a lot of relevance. So when we look at the Eightfold Path, you know, the first component of the Eightfold Path is right view. And classically, right view is the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Okay, And the Four Noble Truths start with the um, understanding or the appreciation or the recognition that there is suffering. And the suffering that's described classically is the suffering of change, the suffering of pain, and the suffering of inherent existence, the suffering of what it is just to be alive in this world, the kind of impingement of what happens just being alive in this world. But those characteristics or those like categories don't touch the pain of isolation, the pain of meaninglessness, the pain or the suffering of not knowing if we are okay, the pain or the suffering of not knowing where we belong, the pain and the suffering of feeling like there's something fundamentally wrong with who we are, being alive in this world. And when I speak to people and on retreats and people come to me for counsel, this is endemic. I see this everywhere. And yet the dukkha that we hear described classically is often not the dukkha that comes to talk to me when I'm available for counsel. Okay? And so what is needed is to begin to understand how when we're studying dukkha, and in my opinion, we don't only limit it to the classical descriptions of dukkha that were first described in the noble truths. We're willing and need to find a way to open up and embrace the kinds of suffering that we are experiencing in the present moment and look at them and address them. Classically, when we look at the experience of suffering, what we're interested in is the cause of suffering. And from a classical perspective, what that means is not wanting things to be the way they are and wanting things to be different. And so it isn't the external circumstances so much is our internal relationship with it. But when you square that, not wanting it to be the way it is and wanting it to be different, with the experience of a kind of a deep sense of fundamentally something is wrong, or a sense of meaninglessness or purposelessness or emptiness, which is the emptiness of having no warmth, of no sense of belonging or connection, then it also seems to not quite make complete sense to say that the solution is in not wanting it to be there. 
And so if our emptiness and our meaninglessness and our purposelessness came as a result of dismantling our sense of connection with each other, with life, and with nature, then it seems to me that part of the solution is through reconnecting with ourselves, with community, and with nature. And not to try and solve a relational problem by transcending it. So, it has been my premise that one of the things that needs to happen in a postmodern society is, is that the Eightfold Path, the hub of it, needs to be community. Where all of the spokes of what comes out of the path needs to reconnect with our sense of community and our sense of being in relationship with each other, with ourselves, and with the land that supports us. Because that seems to be one of the places where our society is not um, bringing the conditions needed in order to address the places where we ache. So we have to do it ourselves. We have to find the way ourselves. We have to support and encourage each other. So when we look at that, that actually from a perspective of a postmodern world, what is needed is to change the emphasis so that the sangha and the community becomes the hub. And then we look at the rest of the Eightfold Path in terms of what that might look like. We have a different emphasis on essential teachings that don't change. We have a different interpretation and application. So the essential teachings are the same, but the emphasis, the application, the interpretation has slightly different context in that. When we look at right intention, classically, you know, this has a, a, a right thought. This has a whole specific set of meanings. But when we look at it from the perspective of putting the community at the center of our practice, then our intention has got to be to be able to develop whatever skills and tools we need to navigate the complexity, the challenges that arise with being in relationship. And so people are not just an obstacle that we overcome, but they become actually part of our practice that allows us to develop. And so when we see it as part of our practice that allows us to develop, then it gives us the interest and the courage and the strength to be able to stay with stuff that normally we would have no patience for. Because anytime there's more than three people in a space or two people in a space, you're going to have complexity that's going to require an awful lot of skill and patience to navigate. And the tendency is to say, I don't want to have to deal with that. Get me out of here. 
But when we realize that the community is actually an essential part of our own experience of awakening, that has a totally different quality in our ability to stay present, show up, and develop the skills that are needed in order to do the work. Let me digress for a moment. I lived in a monastery for 20 years as a part of a nun's community that was part of a larger community. And when I arrived at the monastery, the basic MO was, you know, shut up and sit on your cushion and figure it out. So if any there was a problem that was arising between any people, that was the kind of basic modus of operandi that was offered, either as instruction or that we had internalized. If there was any problem, the idea was is that if you could just sit long enough by yourself on the cushion, then that would be the way to figure it out. Well, people who are in community laugh and smile and giggle because you realize that when you're dealing with relationship problems, then the solution is not to isolate yourself, but to stay in relationship. Yeah? But we did not have the skills on how to stay in relationship because as contemplatives, our strength was contemplation. So we needed to learn the skills, develop the skills, develop the interest in developing the skills. And lo and behold, we did, and we noticed a significant shift in our community. The community of sisters was much more able to feel the diversity that arose within us to be able to stay in empathetic resonance even at times of adversity, to be able to hold the complexity, to listen to each other or respect each other and move forward in a way that was both in the best interest of the group but at the least expense of the individuals involved. And it took years it was this not an easy learning and it was absolutely not something that most of us knew when we came. We had to learn it. And as we did, we developed more safety, we developed more trust, we developed more capacity. And as we developed more safety and trust and capacity, then our ability to support each other went much deeper. And as we were able to support each other to go much deeper, we could both hold a mirror up and say, no, it's not acceptable for you to harm yourself in front of me, to slander yourself, to berate yourself, to shame yourself, to humiliate yourself. These are not acceptable behaviors for you to do in front of me. And as we got a little bit more safe and a little bit more trusting, we could also begin to hold the space where we could mirror things for each other that the other couldn't see themselves. Now, we had to learn how to be extraordinarily sensitive about whether there was enough safety to do that. Because if we stepped over the bounds of safety, we dismantled the safety and trust rather than encouraged it and supported it. So in addition to learning to communicate, we also learned to be enormously sensitive to what kind of safety was needed in order to offer those kinds of reflections and to not do that if the safety was not present.
So there's right view, there's right intention, or rather than right view, in this kind of a world, we're looking at connected view, connected intention, connected speech. And connected speech was not only what was true and what was timely, but what was exquisitely sensitive. And so earlier today we were talking and I was saying that it was a remarkable experience living with a community of women. I don't know if this is gender specific, but it seems to be my experience, it tends to be as a generalization, that women tend to be perceptive generally. Not exclusively, but generally. Okay? Women in community are more perceptive. And celibate women are just unbelievably perceptive. <laughs> and so our perceptivity was like 25 years more developed than our skill level in measuring the trust and safety that was needed in order to be able to reflect what we saw in a way where we were speaking about something that was useful for the other person. It took 25 years for our skill level to catch up with our perceptivity levels. So speech then is not only about divisiveness and honesty and truth-telling, but about developing the safety so that we can continue to grow in a way which supports all of us awakening. Right action is not only about refraining from killing, refraining from stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from incorrect speech and refraining from intoxicants. It's about the activities that support trust developing community developing, cohesiveness developing. And as a community of sisters, we did all kinds of things that was supportive of those endeavors that were not classically described in the Vinaya or in the suttas. We had to figure it out for ourselves. And when we did, and we did to good advantage, there was good result. So then when we talk about right livelihood, what we're interested is in not only livelihood that's not harming, but livelihood which is also able to begin to start bringing the qualities of our meditation experience into our daily life, and livelihood which then starts to envision how is it that we can support the community flourishing even more so. So the vision that I have been holding for the last many, many, many years is a way of monastics and lay community living together that is of mutual benefit and mutual support. And so initially, you know, what I'm doing, I'm interested in creating a training monastery for nuns that supports nuns coming into full empowerment as women in our contemporary world. And then what I'm interested in is developing a, like a Dhamma village where people of all precepts and all genders who are interested in waking up are part of a village that are interested in moving towards a common goal of how do we support each other. Now, 
one of the things that I so deeply rejoice about this community is, is that you don't have a leader. And because you don't have a leader, it means that all of you have had to step up and learn to work with each other and support each other and find ways of bringing in teachers and find ways of bringing in the Dhamma that nourish, but where you are not handing your power over to an external authority and undermining yourselves in the process. And to me, that is right with where we're at in a postmodern world. It doesn't make sense in our contemporary world for people to hand their power over to authority when in doing that there are levels in which they are undermined or disempowered from having the ability to decide, to act, to question, to voice their experience and to find ways that work for them. And yet, alongside that, undeniably, there has got to be an appreciation that people who have experience have something to offer that people who have less experience can value. So what's needed is not to throw the teachers out, but to find a way of integrating the teachers in a way where the power structures is such that you are not disempowered by being in relationship with a teacher. Well, hats off to all of you. That's exactly right. That's exactly what's needed. But what does that look like? And how do we do that? When we talk about right concentration, Classically, there's lots of descriptions about developing the jhanas or the absorption so that the mind focuses into an object and the world ceases to have the kind of impact and importance that it normally does. And certainly, it is really important that we understand the value of letting the kind of duties and responsibilities that we carry dropping them and allowing the mind to come into stillness and peacefulness. Because the kind of machinations of our thinking about worrying and taking something that we're working with now and projecting it into the future means that we're never in the present. And when we're never in the present, it means that our life is very shallow and very limited in terms of our ability to experience joy and ease and connection. Yeah, But in our contemporary society, the model has got to include a lay, a, a lay life that has all kinds of complexity in it and not extensive periods of retreat. And so rather than emphasize deep absorptions, which often require very specialized circumstances and for many people, time, What's needed is to drop attention into the present moment and release the attachment to the thoughts and to be able to do that periodically throughout the day. And so to have a three-breath retreat five times a day or ten times a day 
so that in three breaths you just absolutely drop all sense of having to carry the world around you and totally immerse yourself into the present moment and feel the connection with your body and the earth and allow that to nourish you and allow that to bring your own attention back into what's happening right now. And so that kind of concentration then supports the mindfulness which is possible to bring into the present moment, which is always able to say what's happening right now and how am I relating to it. What's happening right now and how am I relating to it when you're doing dishes, when you're buying groceries, when you're talking to your grandkids, when you're in a meeting, when you're on the computer. It's relevant, it's possible, it's transportable, it works. It does not require special practices to do that. How is it that we can stay and support each other so that our aspiration to awaken is nourished, it's not undermined? How can we be present with each other that supports that? And how is it that when we are in certain relationship with each other, it undermines that? What are the differences between those ways of being together? These are really important questions to ask. Because it helps then focus our connected view, our connected intention, our connected thought, our connected action. So that we can continue to show up in ways that is actually a movement towards ease, towards happiness, towards joy, towards insight, towards understanding, and away from harming, from shaming, from ostracizing, from blaming, where there's less suffering. We can move away from less suffering, from suffering. In a deep understanding of Dhamma, we can understand or we can see or we can realize that there isn't any inherent separate existence to anything or to anybody. You know, this at the moment is functioning as a glass of water. If we took the flowers and we stuck it in here, it would be a vase. If I turn it upside down and I balance the Buddha on it, it'd be a Buddha stand. If I used it on a, on a marble tabletop with some dough, it'd be a rolling pin. If I hit over somebody's head, it would be a weapon. It doesn't have any inherent separate existence. The existence of it is dependent on how I use it and my relationship with that. None of us have a separate existence. Our existence is made up based on our relationship with ourself, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the land. Who we are is shaped by relationship. It doesn't have an independent existence. For many in our society, it's shaped by power, by material possession, 
by status. And yet we can see that those things are not things that ultimately satisfy and nourish our longing to belong or even fill our sense of who we are and what our purpose is in life. So the Buddha said, I teach only two things. He said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. And when we really touch suffering, not just in the classical description of what it is, but in every single manifestation of the way we experience it, how is it possible to touch suffering and not have our heart open with compassion? For ourselves, for each other, and for the world. When we understand that there isn't any inherently existing person or thing or self, then there's no limit or boundary to where compassion flows. Because there's no line drawing of who's included and who's excluded. And living from a perspective of a flow of care and kindness and respect and love. Is that of interest? Does that help bring a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of value in life? I'm not here to tell you what you should think but I can describe my own experience and ask questions in a way to help you formulate how you think, what you value, how you want to live, and what's important in your community to develop. So it's understandable to me that when we came from a traditional society, that there are going to be elements of traditional values that are going to be passed on through generations. And so one of the experiences that I've had as a nun is living in a, in a, in a Buddhist world that traditionally has not valued women as much as it has valued men. And that is what happened in a traditional society. And in a postmodern world, it just doesn't wash. It doesn't make any sense to live like that or to support values like that. But the way is not in denouncing the traditional values, but embodying the values that make sense now. And it isn't so much about creating structure or um, we cannot legalize enlightenment. We cannot create a constitution that makes enlightenment guaranteed. 
we can have certain structures that are more conducive and less conducive. But this whole work is, a, is, is about finding the places where the, the disconnected views are embedded in ourselves, illuminating them, and releasing them. And embodying something new. So, when we understand that who we are is a function of our relationship with each other, that's another way of saying the same thing. That in order for an individual person to awaken, the community has to awaken. And so if I want to maximize my own potential for awakening, it will be important to me to see that I support health in every area of my life and relationship and community around me. So you're a community. What do you value? What's important to you? What do you want to do? How do you want to grow? What would you like to see happen? It's in your hands. You have the ability to decide. What would you like? So I'd like to change format now and have this be a discussion and include my sister Annie Palmo in the conversation as well as everybody here and see what gets stirred up, what things landed, what kind of questions or comments you have as a result of this. Good questions and not easy ones. The question was, is how do you build safety? How do you define it? And how do you, how do you, what kind of steps do you need in order to build it? Yeah. So I was using that in the sense of trust. You know, how do you build trust in a community? And I can speak from my personal experience living in a community of nuns, which will be different because here we were a group of women who had a commitment to precepts. We were living in monasteries. We had um, many times where we would meet together, and many of us lived together over many, many, many years. Okay, So the circumstance of that was different, but the context may have similar components to it to be able to uh, pick out what's useful and apply it here. In our situation, we started by recognizing the lack of safety and the lack of trust and the recognition that we didn't have the resources within ourselves to be able to figure out what was needed in order to sort it out. So our first movement towards safety 
was to bring in some outside facilitation to help hold the space to be able to figure out what on earth is going on here. And it took, in my opinion, about five years of us retracting our projections onto each other to be able to do the individual work that was needed about where this stuff was all coming from in ourselves to then get to the next level of what was the complex social dynamic that we were in that was contributing significantly to the complexity that we were having to navigate. And that took another five years. And through this second five-year period of time, what we began <coughs> to feel was how when we valued each person's aspiration and moved forward from a place of where we had connection and commonality, where we had a sense of resource and agreement, and were increasingly careful not to transgress boundaries, then safety emerged. So for example, Let's say somebody and I had a fight, and she blew up, and I felt devastated. And she wanted to clear it with me, and I didn't feel enough trust to be able to talk it through because I was still too raw. Then it was important for me to know where I was at and say I'm not ready yet to talk about it. Even though her need was to resolve it as soon as possible, my need was is that it was too scary to speak. And so I needed to wait until I had some confidence that there was some ability that I could reconnect from a place of, of ground, of, of connection, of trust, that I could even begin the process of trying to heal the damage that had happened from some kind of a difference. When we were able to meet... If I spoke from the place of our resource, rather from the place of, of, of my, my blaming, if I took responsibility for what I was feeling and articulated that in terms of the needs that I had that were not being met, then in communicating in that way, I wasn't dismantling the trust I was allowing my own internal experience to be shared without further damaging the, what was already quite fragile. Sometimes we couldn't just do it, the two of us. We needed to have a third person hold the space. And so moving forward with trust in that situation would begin to get a sense of when we had the capacity and when it was outside of our capacity and when we needed more resource. So a large part of developing safety was our ability to understand when we had capacity and when we didn't. And get support or a third person to help when it was outside our capacity to navigate. Yes? Thank you. 
right, this really heartfelt blog after the shootings happened. Was it the Colorado Yeah, you recognize that we're so isolated today, and yet we have such an ability to get our hands on destructive things. That he saw the ethics of his Buddhist practice as being so very instrumental to today's needs, especially the acknowledgement that we are connected, that that's really kind of at the core of danger for a lot of people is that they become so isolated from everything that, you know, they, they forget that it, we're all connected. So when I hear that, I, I, I'm deeply appreciative. And, and, you know, hearing if you have any thoughts on that. None, none, not with that particular thing that come to mind, not with the shootings. Well, I, I mean, I, I was living in community for many, many years. And then I came to the States, and since I've been in the States, and most of the time I've been living on my own. And so the experience of isolation and loneliness is something that I've really, you know, had here, you know. Because as a monastic living in Colorado Springs on my own, it's quite uh, remarkable sometimes. But one of the things that I've noticed is, is that I live close to the Garden of the Gods. And I have, I, I have a love relationship with those rocks. I absolutely, totally love that garden. You know, I go into that garden, and that garden for me is like entering through a porthole to pure presence. Okay? So when I'm with the rocks, I never feel lonely. And I never feel isolated. I never feel alienated. I feel absolutely like I belong and that everything is welcome. So one of the things that has been so interesting to me is our profound sense of isolation is totally related to the way we are viewing ourself and our relationship with other. And so even though in the Garden of the Gods I'm in relationship with rocks, I'm in relationship. And the relationship then carries me outside of the sense of isolation and loneliness. Do you have anything to say on that? Actually, yes. Um, one thing that I see, um, especially in the Vajrayana tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, um, we have the term emptiness. And I see it so often really, really abused. The when people don't want to deal with something, they just say, well, it's all empty, just forget about it. <laughs> and it really becomes a handicap to starting to realize what Sangha is. You know, they say, oh yes, yeah, Sangha is maybe all this, this great Bodhisattva up there. Well, we are all Sangha to each other. 
And when we cannot support each other, nobody will. It is really, really very important that we starting to learn on how we can support each other on, on all those different emotional levels so we can do the practice, so we can grow, so we can get enlightened. And um, that's one thing I, I'm not quite sure on how to address because the answer is, well, it's all empty. So uh, I'm kind of in a catch-22 in that situation because people a lot of times don't want to deal with the situations. But you are extremely lucky to have a Sangha here that has been together for so long and you have started to work together and you can strengthen that. There's so many different ways you can really strengthen that. You're in a great position and you're very lucky to have that. Yes, in the back. You mentioned that you are in the postmodern society. What do you think the role of social media like Facebook, Twitter, as an instrument for that? So the question was, is what's the role of social media like Facebook, Twitter, and all of those things in, in, in the, as, a, as, a, as a method or as a way for enlightenment? Yeah? Facebook was designed to be addictive <laughs> and it succeeded and part of the reason why it's so successful is because we have a longing to connect and so it fulfills a portion of our longing to connect by, by allowing us to feel the kind of social connections that happen with the different kinds of ways that people are posting and relating to each other okay Sangha is a part of what's needed in order to ripen the faculties of mind so that we can see clearly. But what is also needed is wisdom and clear seeing and settledness and stillness. And so when we have something like an addiction to Facebook and we're not seeing clearly or stilling our mind, we might have 10,000 friends but we actually are not present in the present moment, then we have the advantage of being able to communicate with large numbers of people and to have a feeling of a network that we're belonging to. But we have the distraction of our attention not being settled and still. So there's two edges to it. And with anything, it's a question of how we're relating to it as opposed to the thing itself. Okay? Annie Palmo is a very dear friend of mine. And for the last 16 months, I've been really sick. And I mentioned on Facebook, I was sick. And Annie Palmo invited me to California and said, come and I will treat you. Because she before was a chiropractic doctor and her specialty was dealing with the very thing that I was working with. And so I trusted my intuition and I came to California and she treated me and she cured me of something that is extremely difficult to be cured. Having health is a really important part of what's needed in order to see clearly. That was possible because of Facebook.
lot about um, valuing connections and building trust in, in your monastic community um, where you were living together and had you know, years to work it out and, and your struggles with that. Um, and obviously that's you know your experience. I'm wondering if you could say anything about how how to bring the same kind of, of intention of valuing others' experience and 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 what comes out of our practice into organizations where I mean like I'm thinking about my senior management team at work and another organization that I'm involved with where there's a lot of, uh, of conflict right now. Um, how to bring that into, into those kind of settings where you don't have the same kind of underlying <coughs> commitment to a certain set of ethics and process and that sort of thing. So, um, on, on the Awakening Truth website, there's two resource lists of books. One of them is uh, the, the books that are related to meditation, and the, the other is a book that's related to other community resources. Sorry, this thing is a little bit fiddly. I don't know if that's better. Is that better? Yeah. So on the second list, the resource list, there's three or four books that are related to um, communication skills. And uh, three of them have to do with developing um, quality, collaborative uh, structures in work environments. One of them is called the Dance of Change. One of them is the Fifth Discipline Workbook. One of them is uh, something to do with leadership. And all of them are about work situations. And some of them are like, you know, in the military or in the steel union or whatever. And, you know, they're not about a bunch of hippies sitting together with peace signs on there. They're like, you know, hardcore, tough people who are, who are, who, who are at each other's throats. And they're trying to figure out how they can navigate uh, really intense conflict. And yet they bring these principles into normal, very working class situations to phenomenal result. And what they have found is, is, is that when people begin to understand how to bring these principles in, that it's possible to bring them into all sorts of circumstances that otherwise seem um, intractable. So I read these books and I was weeping with kind of like inspiration and amazement at the courage and the transformation and the things that were happening in ordinary situations. And it wasn't because all of a sudden everybody took a 10-day meditation retreat. You know, that was not the basis that they were coming from. But they found a way to bring these values into, into work situations in a way that was very effective mm. yes would each of you be willing to speak to the suffering you passed through and something beautiful that they have come <laughs> I think one of the biggest challenges that I had was in a community that I was living for six years and it was 
very difficult when I left. I felt I needed to explore more, I needed to grow, and I couldn't do that and still be part or friends of the community. So I was literally kicked out within three days, and um, I was there for six years, and it was like my whole family was killed in a car wreck, and I had literally nobody left. And it took me years to overcome the pain and suffering from that experience. And I have known members who left before, and they were still after several years in severe pain. And I was seeing that and saying, I will not be there. I will get out of this. And I was working very, very hard with practice to come to a point where I can feel compassion. And after a while, I needed to test myself. And after a few years, I went back and just say hello and wanted to see how everybody was. And it was interesting. And I watched myself. How did I feel? Did I shake? Did I, you know, it was okay. I was okay leaving. It was an interesting experience. But interesting enough, people, actually one of my sisters got killed and then the head of that um, center got very ill, and he almost died. And I decided to go and visit him just before that. And as I went in, we just looked at each other. We didn't say a word. We just looked at each other. And in that moment, I could see that whatever happened before, he was so grateful, so grateful that I was there and seeing him with an open heart that everything just changed. And um, I think for me that was the biggest challenge to overcome that incredible pain. And I must say I'm, I'm still going back every so often and I'm still in contact now. And I'm not agreeing with a lot of the stuff that's happening there, but I can be there with an open heart. And it feels really so wonderful to, to feel compassion for that and not vengeance or not all of those other feelings. But it was very hard, very hard to go to work on that. Yeah. So if I if I look at a situation of suffering, there were a few. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I can just briefly talk about when I left England again you know I left England there had been the community of sisters had done quite a lot of work together and the more um, healthy we got the more we got able to be able to speak our truth in a way where we stayed in empathetic resonance with people of a diversity or aversity um, somehow the more threatening we became to the larger community. And so there was a tipping point and there was a, quite a significant patriarchal retrenchment that then required the nuns to agree to all kinds of things that were clearly unacceptable and not uh, furthering. And so all kinds of things happened and um, it became clear to me that it was no longer going to be possible for me to stay in the community that I was part of. And so I decided to leave. 
And when I decided to leave, I was coming to the United States as an alms mendicant, having been a nun for 20 years, with no invitation, with no funds, with no support, with no community, with no foundation, with no benefactor, with no sponsor. And what was really amazing to me was that the training of the monastery, which was to trust my aspiration and my integrity, and to be able to rest in uncertainty, made it possible for me to effectively go to the edge of a crevasse and jump. And I did. I jumped. And I had the faith that a net would form and catch me before I hit the floor and smashed to 10,000 pieces. And it did. There was some support, and there was a way to live, and there was an invitation. And then once I landed, carefully, then I fell to pieces. (laughs) 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 And the practice of being able to stay with what it's like when you're falling to pieces was again another amazing experience of how do you navigate that amount of pain and come out of it where you're not blaming anything or anyone but you're just seeing it as a confluence of a whole bunch of different factors that are come together with people doing the best that they can. Everybody is doing the best that they can. And even though my choice was clear I didn't want to play that game, I could see that everybody was doing the best that they can. We're after nine. Are you still okay to stay for a little bit longer, or should we wind this up? We could wind up, and if you're willing to stick, stick around, we can, those who want to stay can stay and ask a few more questions. Shall we do that? Let's do that. Let's wind up, and then those people who have a few more questions, we can stay for a bit longer. Yeah? So um, what I'd like to do in winding up, again, is to express, express my deep sense of appreciation for this community here for the collective efforts that you've made for all of these years, for your interest and willingness to grow together, for your warm welcome and care and support of me and my very dear sister here, and to recognize that coming together and sharing in this way has a quality about it that's really um, important. Because what we talk about in a situation like this has the possibility of opening our hearts to something that allows a radical new way of being in the world. And that's precious and that's rare. And so in whatever way that we have brought our attention and our interest and our effort here together tonight, the blessings that have come, the goodness that has come, the openness that has come, Let that be shared for all beings in all directions everywhere. That everyone everywhere can know what it is to live with care, with kindness, with respect, with freedom. To be free from suffering. Thank you.